Hey, and welcome back to the Progress Podcast. We've just finished a fantastic interview with my friend Logan Williams with the grassroots Canterbury born and bred story, small town New Zealand, to really killing it on the world stage with five different inventions, Forbes 30 under 30. We cover topics from his upbringing all the way through to how to commercialize a novel invention. You're not going to want to miss it. So we're here to tell the story of Logan Williams. Mm. Um, We've got a man who's made five successful inventions. You're on the Forbes 30 under 30. You've been a finalist for the Young New Zealander of the Year. You've got two dogs and you're married all by age 27. I want to know how the story begins. Somewhere in Timaru, a young boy has grown up to someone who's doing the impossible. Where does that story start? Well, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, like you alluded to, I, I grew up in Timaru. Um, I have two sisters, Paige and Madison, um, and I grew up with both my parents. And the street I lived on growing up was Tekapo Street. And Tekapo Street in Timaru was quite infamous at the time because there was a lot of gangs on the street. Um, I actually lived next door to the leader of the mongrel mob in no Timaru. Nice. Um, yeah, and it was a... It was a state house. My parents were both working class, working really hard. Um, yeah, my dad started out as a locksmith and he saved every dollar he could um, to buy the business, Ally Locks, which he now owns. And my mum, to help support us as well, worked at Pack and Save stocking shelves, um, even when she was pregnant with my sister. Um, and although, you know, the neighbourhood was rough, it gave me a good respect for, you know, hard work and really digging in and and also like a, a value for education and trying to make more for myself. So in the early days, I was all about the money. You know, I was just money hungry. I was like, there is no way I'm going to be poor like this again. Um, but it also gave me a basis to not fear taking risk because mm. what's the worst that could happen? I'll just go back to living in a state house, you know, with watered down Raro and like one dollar bread like i've done it before so what what's the risk if i what do i have to lose nothing that's really interesting i think um some people don't really respect how being a subject of your environment can really form you in quite a positive way do you do you see that that environment was the driver for where you've ended up today were you, were you drawn by success or dragged by it yeah, so I definitely think to pull yourself up by by the straps is really hard, you know. Like um, in the early days, everyone thought I was crazy because I really had no connections or no 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 network. Um, so it forced me to work harder than the average person, um, and really hustle. And that is, I guess, a characteristic that I really value today and that I use today to build companies. Is that you know dig deep, work hard, hustle, and um, yeah, which if you had everything handed on a silver platter, you may not necessarily have that, I, I would say. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that story. I mean, my dad too, grew up on a shovel, worked his way up through the business, and I learned that save every penny through hard work is how you, you, know, you make something of yourself. Um, what aspects of that dynamic with your dad would you say have been the most sort of long last thing. Obviously you had that drive to, you know, get yourself out of poverty. You didn't want to be there again. Um, but you know, you could be. 
Um, but yeah, what were the sort of the fundamentals that you learned from your father as a young man, sort of growing up in that situation? Yeah, so my my father's one of my biggest role models. You know, I, I idolize my father. Um, I guess one thing he taught me was risk taking, and a lot of people, you know, are so focused on let's buy a house, let's get a real nice car on finance, you know, let's send our kids to like the nicest school, let's keep up with the Joneses and have the nicest stuff. Actually, he focused on saving every dollar he could into building his business and building his empire. Like he didn't necessarily care about the car, like we ran in a pretty budget car and we had not much money when it came to a house. But he he invested everything he owned in himself and in the business, and that's something that I really admired and still do today. Like I don't really go all in on the whole Ferrari or or giant house. What I'd rather do is invest in things that I truly believe in and myself. That's where you get the best return and best value for your money. I think that is very, that is very true, and I think it um it shows for everyone who doesn't know Logan. Logan and I known each other for a, a wee while, but Logan's the I'm driving around in my my 2012 Nissan Leaf, which he says is the best investment he's ever made, um, and the Mazda Bongo. Yeah, don't forget the Bongo. <laughs> I've heard so much about the Bongo. Oh yeah, too many too many stories. Um, but I think as we I guess progress through that relationship with your parents, and I, you talked a lot about your mum's hard work as well, not just your your dad's and how that supported your your family. Has that translated now? Like, what's the family dynamic now that you've you know, we've, as Jack alluded to before, being 27, having the level of success you have now, how has that your family dynamic shifted to now? Well, there's this weird transition that actually not all kids and their parents can make, and that's the transition from them being, I guess, in charge of you to becoming your friend. And I'm really lucky that my parents and I have made that transition. So now, like, my dad and mum are, like, my best mates. So, awesome. you know, last year we went travelling to the Philippines and Thailand. And <laughs> it was great to do that, you know. Um, yeah, it's sick. And, it, you know, just drinking in Phuket, you know. you can't. Not everyone can do that with their parents. And I'm really lucky to, to have that relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a super awesome relationship. Oh, man. It's so cool to see how that dynamic has I guess, evolved as you've grown up. And like you said, it's turned something awesome. Um, and two, with your sisters, how has that dynamic kind of inspired you? It sounds like you're a pretty close, tight-knit family. Um, would you say that's been an inspiration for you as well with where you're at now? Yeah, I think um, I love my sisters to pieces. We've definitely had our challenges like every, every sibling, <laughs> um, but they're definitely on the right track now and they've had success in their own right. Uh, yeah, I, I think... Being the older brother is a, mm. is a big part of it as well because you're mm. like the protector of the family in a sense. And, and you know, when I attract people to my companies, I almost like to feel like I'm the protector of them as well. You know, I, I like to think that anyway. Maybe it's not the case, but, you know, they're part of the family now and I'm that, that big brother or a really weird uncle <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the family. <laughs> Oh, that's good, man. <laughs> no, and I totally, I totally agree with that. Like, having worked with you as well, it's very much. I mean, we had a pretty funny dynamic anyway, but it is very much a family dynamic, which is cool. I'd probably say the the fun older brother as opposed to the weird uncle. <laughs> um, we can stick with that narrative. Tom likes to be the weird uncle. That's yeah, it. he's like that there role is taken. Sorry, it's taken. <laughs> um, you talked about growing up 
next to the Rangal Mob, but also one of the things that you you talk about, and I guess your other your other talks is how you spent a lot of time growing up in the Canterbury region and exploring with your dad and your family. Like, how important was that? And I know that it led through into into some of your inventions and your passions. So so how did that help form you? Yeah, although my parents didn't have a lot of money, they they gave me a lot of time, which I mm. think in a sense is actually more valuable. So. Dad would always take the time out to go fishing and camping with me. Um, we always went out to, well, it's Holden Arm on Tikapo River and went fishing and eeling and, and shooting, um, which was awesome. So I really grew up quite close to the land. And, and I think in everything that I've done and will continue to do has an environmental focus to it. I think just as a right to run a business, you need to, you know, at least have a minimal impact on the environment, if not a positive one. Yeah. Yeah, you actually said that in your loading docks um, video. The, mm. the quote was, the true solution is building social enterprise and businesses around conservation because it's self-sustaining. And it's quite interesting to hear that that's a, a value you learned from a young age. I mean, you've got the photo that you showed when you were doing the talk to Christ's of you with your dad fishing in the river mm. um, when you were what, five years old, six years old. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, from a very early age and... I would employ everyone, anyone who's building a business to think about the environment in at least some aspect. Um, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. great that that's close to your heart. Um, I love just the idea of you and your dad out there fishing and, you know, the lakes and the rivers around Timaru. Um, Timaru and Christchurch Canterbury especially, I don't know, for some reason I feel like never in my mind have we been the centre of business and innovation and... You know, we're seeing this amazing um, uptick that's grown in Christchurch over the past sort of 10, 15, 20 years. Um, we're a real hub of innovation. How would you say Timaru as your hometown kind of inspired you or how would you say that environment of where you come from affects who you are today? So for those of you who don't know, Timaru is, a, is quite a small rural town. Um, very blue-collared. I mean, most people either work at the port or they work at the dairy factory. And mm. when you, I went to Timaru Boys High School and, awesome. and leaving Timaru Boys High, you were successful if you got a job at Fonterra in the dairy factory or you went to the meatworks or you got a job at the port. Um, Timaru mm. has, I guess, <laughs> this, this funny law where it's one of the places with the lowest unemployment in the country. Everyone's wow. working. I don't know yeah, that. no, really much about Timaru, to be completely honest, man. Yeah, so. so I grew up, like, to be unemployed was virtually unheard of. Um, maybe the, uh, the argument is you wouldn't live in Timaru if you didn't have a job there. But, um, I may agree with that. <laughs> but, but fundamentally, you know, when everyone around you is blue-collared, hard-working, you know, really mm. grassroots, it, it keeps you well-grounded. Um, and, and for me, I wanted to do more. I wanted to go beyond that. Um, I guess that's a good segue. You know, none of my family had ever been to university before, my intimate or extended family. Um, and part of me breaking the bond, I didn't want to go and work at Fonterra or work at, yeah. you know, I wanted to go and make something of myself and be the first person to go to uni. What yeah. made you have that drive? Um, I just saw the people that I was hanging around with and, and, you know, where I could be in 20 years if I just stayed put and mm. stayed the normal path. And I hated it. I wanted more. I wanted 
to be wealthy. I wanted all the awards, um, especially in those early days. You know, yeah. I was an arrogant, money-hungry <laughs> person, but I guess that changes over time. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got to give yourself credit. You were a pioneer in your family, and that's what brought you to, I guess, where you are. Now you're pioneering in all these different industries. So we go from you being small town, Timaru, hardworking, it's instilled in you that, okay, this is my pathway forward. I'm going to work my way to the top. You go, you join UC, and I feel like this is really where the story's got to begin for you, right? You go and you decide, okay, I'm going to start doing the sciences. I'm really curious as where that inspiration led. So what actually led you to go to university and go, cool, I'm doing science. This is where my passions are at. I would say what drove me to go to university was actually loneliness and isolation. Um, I felt like I needed to be surrounded by ambitious people that were on the same wavelength mm. as me and wanted to succeed and and not be considered a nerd, if that makes sense. Although, in my own way, I'm a bit of a rebel. At heart, I am a nerd. So I wanted to be surrounded by other intelligent people that were striving to you know, actually change the world and not just plot along um, and be, be an average person, I guess. And, you know, what, what was critical for me was hustling and getting my way into Bishop Julius, the Hall of Residence at University of Canterbury. And that's where I actually met my wife and my best friends still to this day, Alex and Brittany. Um, Alex isn't my wife, if you're wondering. <laughs> <laughs> you were clarifying um, that for Brittany's sake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry, Brittany. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of like what kicked off, you know. Um, going to University of Canterbury was so critical for me. Uh, I... I'm really glad I made that decision. Upon reflection, there are like a collection of small decisions that at the time don't seem critical, but are actually fundamental to where you are. And if you hadn't made that slight small decision, you wouldn't end up way out here. You would have ended up over here. And just yeah. simply choosing to go to University of Canterbury, not Otago, and Bishop Julius, none of the other halls sent me over here. That's really interesting. That I, And I think that's something that, needs to be highlighted throughout the journey that it's not just these big pivotal moments that there's actually lots of micro steps Something stacking right yeah yeah it's not it's not a it's not a epiphany moment or or anything in retrospect you can actually see that oh the drive that i had the position going to uc getting into a specific hall of residence that has changed absolutely altered the course of your life you talked about i guess your your drive being financial mm. and like accolades i think that's probably a pretty natural thing for a for a 17 18 year old going off to uni um do you think that you would be where you are at all or in some respect without following that that path or taking those micro steps i think in essence most young men naturally want to drive towards money and fame and fortune i guess or the accolades or the awards um, and you have to go through that process to actually learn that that's not the end all and be all. Mm. Um, and actually money isn't everything and awards isn't everything. Sure, mm. it's great. Um, and, it, and you know, it does help build your, you know, I guess, rapport with people and your respect and opens a lot more doors. But fundamentally, you should actually focus on what you're, you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and then if you actually succeed in that, the money and the success and awards will come. Was money your why at that point? Or was it more the 
diverting the course of your family's history and being that person to to succeed in an education sense? I think my why was more like running away, kind of flight, like trying to run away from the average. Like my biggest fear was mediocrity. Like if I woke up and was doing a nine to five job where I just felt like it was dead end and there was no progression and I'm just numb in the brain, you know, that's my living nightmare. Like I feel you, man. I always, it's almost like if I'm not chasing something new and exciting or doing something inspirational, I just feel depressed. It's like this massive weight. I don't know how to describe it. It's like an elephant sitting on my chest. If I don't wake up and I actually feel challenged and like moving forward, I just can't do it. Maybe other people can, but I'm just, (laughs) my nightmare. Uh, Dude, I get you. Like there's this weight that sits and it's the the weirdest feeling, right? It's, it's, I can almost feel it in my chest when I feel it, when I'm like, I know I'm either being lazy or... I'm not doing the thing that I should be doing and I stagnate. It's this like unbearable feeling, right? Um, when did that start to, I don't know, do you still feel it? Did that start to lift when you started pursuing your journey? Yeah, when I was young, I didn't really know how to articulate what I just said. Um, but fundamentally, there's two types of stress. There's de-stress and eustress. And de-stress is stressful things that are happening to you that you can do nothing about. Like a good example is the pandemic. There was nothing I could Mm. humanly do about that. Mm. And you want to try and avoid distress, or at least when it comes, you kind of ignore it. But what I discovered was eustress, which is like stress that you can do something about, is not only like okay with me, it is something that I feed off. I love eustress. I didn't know this. I love being in like a stressful situation where something has to be done. I like that gases me up. I get super excited. Yeah, like, man. Gets me out of bed. Like people would like be in the same position and be like overwhelmed, crying in bed. Whereas <laughs> yeah. I'm like smiling. Go, 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 go. Like, oh my gosh, I'm needed. I can actually make a difference. Like that's when I'm, I'm on fire. When did you realize that those situations were what drove you and what really like lit you up? Did you have those experience? I mean, Growing up in Timaru, you already talked about the struggle and like the bread line and what that was like. Do you think growing up next to the likes of the leaders of the mongrel mob and having, I guess, the stress of growing up in, in a town like Timaru? I think fundamentally, it, it, it enabled me to get clarity because I, I, it's from actually constant failure that this was learned because I kept trying to solve distressful situations <laughs> that I had no control And how did on. that go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> failure after failure. You'll fall flat on your face. Yeah. So you have to like seek the eustress. Mm. So that's kind of how you do it. And through successful eustress, you actually get away from de-stress um, because you end up creating a new situation for yourself because you're following, you know, the difficulty. And one reason I love you stress as well is that um, most of the time, a normal person, when they're in a stressful situation or a hard problem, they give up. Like they actively avoid the stress. Whereas like my weird brain, I don't know why I'm wired like this. I like follow the stress. Mm. Um, Yeah. So when you're actually in stressful situations and you're winning and overcoming them, you're beating other people without even realizing it because most people came to that problem and gave up and left. So the more problems and stress you're under, the more success you're doing that 99% of the population wouldn't, wouldn't be following. Yeah, I want to touch on that, man. You're, mm. you're touching on something fantastic. I mean, this I had never heard about this idea of you stress and de-stress. Um, it sounds like it's you've turned into a superpower, right? This is the thing that now 
you know, like you said, people would be blocked by this. You're like, no, nah, this is pushing me forward. How do you, how do you, how would you share to the audience like how you've developed that skill? Is it just through constant trial, or I don't know? I'm I'm curious. So Thomas will attest to this. So my friends call it my pirate's map, and it's not <laughs> yeah. a pirate's map. But um, every day I write out like an extensive to-do list, and I can't go to sleep until the list is done. So if I didn't do this podcast, I wasn't sleeping tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty much, and I kind of categorize them into what my goals are. So I write goals at the start of the year, and then each day I'm writing tasks lists relating to those goals, if that makes sense. Mm. And then those stressful tasks that I need to do are, are like not de-stressful tasks, they're useful tasks that fire me up. So I wake up, ready to go. I look at my list that I prepared the previous morning, and I'm just hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, like trying to trying to win really mm. um and if it's more importantly it's not only what you do but it's also what you don't do so i make sure that the tasks that i'm doing relate to my goals because if they don't why am i doing it like you end up doing tasks running down rabbit holes that actually don't kind of manifest into what your vision is for that year i'm writing this down for me <laughs> i'm putting this in my personal notes man that's great yeah do you when you when you're doing those lists do you focus on the successes of the day or do the, do the failures or the ones you don't exceed drive you further to really push for them the next day? I try to make it a shit sandwich where you have, you know, the delicious be- bread, the shit, and then the delicious bread. So <laughs> I'll do like easy tasks, which I can knock out. And then that really disgusting cough medicine you have to like eat at like 12 o'clock, do a couple of those tasks and then chuck in some fun tasks to, you know, balance it out. Um, Because, you know, there's always those tasks that you're lamenting throughout the day. Like, I have to call this person or I have to do this thing that I don't particularly want to do. But, you know, you make it happen anyway. Do you ever put off tasks? Not allowed to. Can't go to sleep if I don't. True. Okay. On that, what's the longest period of time you've actually stayed awake because you didn't do something? Well, yeah, again, Thomas will know, (laughs) but I'm quite renowned for doing what's called a 24-hour sprint. Um, they've become commonplace in my current project but um, fundamentally what you do is you over time work especially in a business or a startup builds up and you end up having this overload of work Mm. so you structure it in a 24-hour period and you pretty much work 24 hours straight and you knock out as much work as humanly possible I think the longest I've ever ever stayed up was about 36 hours but you start like hallucinating and you're not really productive (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely a productivity curve and i think a lot of people listening logan when they when you're talking about your 24-hour sprints can you talk about the the productivity through that yeah so you're allowed to 20 minute sleeps you know 20 minutes yeah because that's Mm. the ideal like you don't quite go into REM sleep but you get like your energy back up um so that gives you a bit of a boost but fundamentally, you should structure your tasks. So like the cognitive ones that require deep thought should be more in the middle or the start. And then ones that are just kind of, I guess, rudimentary where you're just going through the motions. Like you'd put more at the end where you're running out of energy, like a marathon, I would say. Yeah. One of the things I'm quite conscious of, I guess, with, with something like this, and one of the things we're addressing a lot through the Progress Podcast is there are a lot of entrepreneurial myths and do you think that something like a 24-hour sprint works for everybody or do you just think because you are so outcomes-oriented that it is a way of operating that works for you? Um, 
it doesn't have to be 24 hours, but like regardless of how you cut it, if you're doing a startup in a business, you're going to be doing long hours. So whether you do one 24-hour sprint or like two 18-hour days back-to-back and happen to sleep, like, I mean, the work has to be done and mm. um, the, the slower you work, the slower you grow, right? So you need to... My, my philosophy has always been if you're working twice as hard as the other person, your company is going to be twice as big and, and as successful, in my opinion, yeah. So do you put that pressure on yourself or do you set yourself deadlines that put the pressure on you? How do you like to deal? Like, do you, knowing that you thrive off stress, do you now work around that to basically create your own stress? Yeah, fundamentally, you know, in the early days, I was driven super by money, Okay. But the problem is when you're doing something just for the money and things go wrong, which they always do, they always go mm-hmm. wrong, or things get hard or they're continuously hard for like six months, you will give up. If it's just about the money, mm. you'll just go get a job. I'm telling you. You have to be in, in doing something for a why, for a reason. And that's why I stay up. Because that's why I work tirelessly to make something work. It's because I feel so deeply passionate about the why, the purpose of what I'm doing. It's not the money. The money will come later. What's your why now? My, my why now is tackling the climate crisis and specifically focusing on methane. Um, I, my why is ensuring that my grandchildren can have the same childhood I had and go to the Tekapo River and go fishing and camping like I did. Man, that's that's, th- that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, like, I think we can all, at some level, relate to that. Man, that is that's magic. Yeah. Whether you grew up in the in the Canterbury Plains or um, in the US in the the great outdoors or or any other area of the world, we were very privileged as I guess our generation and generations before us to grow with a really outdoors focused upbringing and uh, knowing the crisis that we're facing giving our kids the opportunity to have that upbringing is, is huge. And it's really inspirational that that's, I guess, the driver behind what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Hey, we just wanted to interrupt this episode to say thank you so much for listening to the Progress Podcast. It really is a dream of ours to bring these stories to life and we really couldn't do it without your support. If you feel like you've gained any value or have learned something incredible from these conversations, we would so appreciate a subscription from you on this platform. We really want you to join us on the Progress Journey and join the progress community. Let's get back to the episode. I so love your why. And I love how your why developed from where you started, how your environment crafted you into someone who wanted to be pushing, pushing, pushing. But also all that time you had with your dad out in the environment with your family has built that love in you that you want to give that onto your children. All of that sort of summed up you go to your first invention, how do you get there and how does that align with your why? So one of the first inventions I ever did, um, I was walking down the riverbed, Tekapo River, with my now wife, Brittany, and I came across a dried piece of Didymo. And Didymo, for those who don't know, is this horrific algae that's destroying our rivers. Mm. Um, it pretty much looks like rock snot. That's what it's called. Well, that's the colloquial name, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, all these rivers that I'd been fishing in, which were crystal clear, you know, catching five, six pound rainbow trout were like filled with this disgusting slime. And when I was walking down the riverbed with Brittany, I came across this dried piece of Didymo and it was white. 
And I'm no rocket scientist, but it looked like paper. To not me. yet, anyway. Just <laughs> <laughs> it just it just looked like paper. It looked like bog roll. So I got a whole bunch of it, laid it out flat, dried it out, just while we we're at the tent camping, and it dried out into like this husk. And I was writing on it, and I was like, "There is something here. We can turn this 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 pest, this algae, into something. I, I know we can." Yeah, that's that's crazy. Was it fully? I mean, was this something that you you went into from that that idea and thought I want to commercialize this, or was it the you've you've often said in your speeches, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm an inventor. Was that the inventor mindset just ticking on and being like, this is this is something I can I can make into something new. I almost thought it was like a unique way to look at conservation because a lot of conservation efforts, and rightly so, are focused on like removing the pests and you're just plowing money into something and what you're getting back is environmental good. How I wanted to approach it was a bit different where I wanted to create a business wrapped around a pest and then try and develop you know, a commercially valuable product that could actually generate profit and then those profits be reinvested back into the, the actual conservation and the act of removing it is part of the business. So the way I started was pretty simple. I, I literally Googled how was papyrus made in Egypt <laughs> and went right back to like the fundamentals, like how was paper made? And, you know, I got the basic ingredients, put them together and started making, you know, decent amounts of paper. I made everything from like canvases for paintings to like just, I was even making business cards. It was one of the first things I was pitching to people like, have a Didymo business card. It was like flopping and falling. <laughs> and are, you, are you just making this out of your like dorm, out of your house? This one's in the kitchen in the flat. And I'll tell yeah, you what, my, my flatmates were not impressed. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, there's not doing the dishes and then there's growing Didymo paper in your kitchen. <laughs> yeah, so I had like these big buckets um, where I just like put the Didymo in and like just drench it in bleach because you have to kill it, right? Or else it's going to spread. Okay, yep. And then I was like laying it out with like adhesive into sheets and putting it in the oven. In the no way. And the bleach was just like fucking like all over the place. And one time I spilt a whole bucket of Diddy Mo on the floor of the lounge and I was using my my, my friend Alex's Dyson. And I was Dysoning up the Diddy Mo. And I still remember to him this day coming back to the flat and being like, who fucking ruined Dyson? <laughs> and got green sludge. All up the vacuum, like, shoot, and all in the catch. And, oh, my no. gosh, that would have been a nightmare to live with. But, yeah, 100%. Uh, like, man. it was literally just me experimenting. I was buying, like, Ritz granular dye from, like, Spotlight and mixing it in. Oh, man, being there. Making a whole bunch of different yeah. colors and presenting it to people. Wow. Yeah, and usually when I presented this invention, people would be, like, first, like, what the heck is Diddy Mo? Second, why the heck are you passing the slime to me? And third, like how high is this guy? And is he mentally deranged? Like that was usually <laughs> that's the, the sign of any good inventor, right? It's just <laughs> <laughs> like the it's it's the moment of shock on their faces. You think I've done it? I've really done it. Yeah. Oh, crazy. So I mean, I mean, you talked about the inception of the the invention and ruining your flatmates, Dyson. Where did that invention take you? Um, how did you exit? What was what was the journey with that? Yeah, well, I feel like so we got to figure out how you even commercialized it first. I mean, we've mm. we've heard about <laughs> all the no's. How many people thought you're crazy? Who said yes? Yeah, so 
very few people said yes. I would say, like, actually, this carries on through all my inventions. 99% it's a no. 99.9% it's, like, you know, still not going to happen. But is that 0.1%? Someone may make it happen. Um, so for me, I made a little bit of money selling paper. So it was mostly through paper artwork. So I was making Didymo canvases and people were painting on the canvases. And you not only had like a great piece of artwork, but you also had, you know, like you were backing up the conservation. So art dealers really loved that. So I would just partner with fine art students at the University of Canterbury and they would do artwork on, on the canvas. Wow. But my, for me, it was like a fundamental issue because it was kind of gimmicky. Like, sure, I was selling, like, canvas, but it wasn't shifting that much Didymo. Like, I really wanted to have an impact. And I soon found out that the paper was just going to go nowhere because how do you compete with an industry that's growing pines en masse, cutting them down and just putting them through a paper pulp? You're never going to achieve that sort of biomass, even though it's abundant in the river, like just the cost of getting it yeah. out. Yeah, it's difficult. So after hitting that milestone, oh, I guess, roadblock... I was very you stressed up, you would say. <laughs> you stressed. <laughs> I, I thought, right, um, there must be some other materials we can make from it. So I started, you know, the first thing I did was buy different types of silicon. So I was using aluminum oxide and silicon oxide, and I was putting the Didymo in it and casting it into products. So what I'd do is I'd make like a cast for like, let's say a belt, belt that you yeah wear. yeah mm. and then i'd like cast with different colors so you got like a didymo leather belt that you could wear so it was like a high-end fashion item so going right. from the low value paper to like medium value like canvas to high value like belts did you see scale being a priority at that point or did you just see diversifying the products as the the key driver my my fundamental driver was First, we have to find a product that fundamentally resonates with the customer and people are willing to pay more than a regular bout for. And more importantly, that that story can have an impact and encourage people to focus more on conservation and reinvest back into removing Didymo for the environment. So it's kind of self-perpetuating. The more mm. belts you sell, the more the stories out there, the more people care about conservation, the more you spend on conservation. That was my thinking anyway, yeah. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. So... You went to belts. You started developing that. Yep. Um, like Jack said, who said who said yes? What took this to the next stage of, of the growth? Yeah, so one of the big yeses I got was a local company called Untouched World. Perry Drysdale's the owner, lovely, lovely lady. Um, she probably doesn't even remember it so long ago now. But she was one of the first people that took risks and we were selling the belts at their stores um, and we're selling other products as well. Um, like I made a handbag out of it. I'm sounding like a fashion eater. Are you, oh, are you oh, making these this. yourself also back in the flat yes, in the lounge? Yeah, wow. Yeah, making them myself. Yep. Yep. For sure. Yep. Hey, man. Throwback. I was in my flat making, you know, making coats, making clothes. You're making handbags. It's just different journeys, you know? Different journeys. <laughs> different materials. Different materials. <laughs> I'm so curious how you're making handbags out of this stuff. Like, what is... Are you, are you making like flat sheets? I was making panels pretty much. Yeah. So my father being a locksmith had a laser cutting machine. So what I'd do is I'd make these big sheets of Didymo material with the, with the silicon oxide that I'd cast into sheets. So to put it, to break it down, quick trip to Bunnings, <laughs> buy like a large <laughs> plastic tray, mix up, you know, make sure it's not aerated, 
silicon oxide of the Diddy mode, cast it into sheets, then I'd take it down to Timaru and we'd laser cut the panels. And then you'd have the main structure of the bag and you'd put like adhesive and stitch because you'd have holes in the panels yeah. onto mm. the bags. That's how I did it anyway, yeah. A quick trip to Bunnings could be the title of your autobiography, <laughs> having worked with Logan. Uh, <laughs> I'd be, I'm not really into sponsorship, but if there was one company to sponsor me, it'd be Bunnings, Sealy, man. Sealy Sealant or Liquid Nails or Bunnings. Like, they're the two. <laughs> Logan put me onto Liquid Nails. Can confirm far too much of it. Um, or Dyson, you know, then yeah. you could actually pay your lovely flatmate back for his. <laughs> <laughs> One day, man. Did you ever replace the Dyson? No, or did you, you know? <laughs> well, I, he's like, know. you have to replace the, you have to replace the vacuum cleaner. So quick trip to the warehouse and I've got a $10 vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Thank same, you, same. Living and Co. <laughs> vacuums and vacuums. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, no. For the environment, right? Yeah, for the environment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's um, let's dive into what Tom wanted um, was asking about. Obviously, you've, you've given us sort of a bit of a rundown of, of how you built this business into what it was, what you were making. I mean, the why behind it is so easy to see. I mean, you, you're full whole, like wholeheartedly in on the environment. What does the end of this business look like for you? Obviously... You exit at some point and you go on to the next thing. I mean, we've got four other inventions to talk about. Mm. What's the ending? Yes, the ending's real simple. Um, After nearly drowning and having hyperthermia and spending a lot of time scraping Didymo snot off rocks, um, (laughs) I decided to plow quite a lot of money into doing a documentary um, with a lovely lady called Jane Mahoney in Christchurch for Loading Docks. We made a five-minute documentary and it got a huge amount of traction. And from that, an undisclosed company offered to buy the company and I sold it to them. So that's how the fairy tale ended, which was actually mostly a living nightmare. <laughs> I guess you followed a pretty, uh, and I mean, it's a pretty tried and true process now. You've done, I mean, you've done it five times, but was it really conscious that you'd developed the idea, you'd gone to the minimum viable product, you'd proved that it could sell, um, you'd marketed it, and then you'd exited was that a, a thought through process like when you started and you dried out a piece of didymo on the riverbed on your camp trip is this where you envisaged it going no way it was literally just failure after failure and failure and it was just my stubbornness that really got it to where it was i just refused to give up um, many people many people including loved ones told me to stop um just because it wasn't worth the pain and <laughs> suffering <laughs> but but i'm really glad i didn't you know um, I think upon reflection, you know, I could have done, now I could have done things a lot differently because <laughs> I know how to approach it. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally, I was happy with how it ended. Yeah. What's well, a hands-on first jump into into business and invention? I mean, the fact that you're in the river yourself, <laughs> almost getting hypothermia, just to pull this stuff up and then you know make it. It's it's amazing that you stuck at it. Like genuinely, sounds like you were in the absolute trenches there. So you've built up stubbornness. You know you can be successful. Um, you continue along the journey. What comes after? You've just sold this. I'm, I'm really curious of like, how did that feel? And there's like a period of time after that where it's got to be this bittersweet thing of, I built this, now it's gone. I just want to add another layer to that as well. You were 19. 19? 20. Uh, this one, I was 20, yeah. Yeah. Man, how does... How did that feel to be a 20-year-old who'd produced this, had been approached by a company? 
had, how did that affect your relationship with, I mean, you knew, you knew Brittany by that point, um, your wife, you'd built these relationships through uni. Was that affected at all by? I think fundamentally, you know, I, I talked earlier about how I'm really invigorated by stress and I'd went from being incredibly stressed and working my butt off to suddenly like selling your child, <laughs> you know, someone adopting your child and watching yeah. them go. And yes, I had money in the bank, but it, it almost felt hollow. And I went to, I went into like quite a bad depression for quite some time. And my wife was incredibly, you know, important during that time. Um, and it taught me that, Hey, it actually wasn't the money or the ending. It was the journey that I really enjoyed and just constantly finding problems and solving and, you know, focused on a why. Because suddenly when you sell a business, your why kind of dissipates and you kind of get this feeling of hollowness and no direction. So there was a six-month period there where I kind of went into a lull um, before getting invigorated and finding, you know, the next, you know, big thing that I wanted to target. I'm good. I appreciate you being honest about that, man. Mm. This is something that I had no idea about. I mean, you've obviously experienced being coming to that end phase as well. Mm. Both of you built a business together and then you ended it. Did you find that same feeling? Totally. And I can massively relate to that. We're pretty similar in the fact that we're both... I think Logan actually probably helped me identify that I was very driven by you stress uh, and thrived off that. And so when I left Sheer Edge, uh, which we'll get into later, um, I totally felt that. And... I don't know, for you, that was your second invention. Mm. And we'll, we'll jump back to, to polar optics in a second. But yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that, that feeling of not having direction because you're not having a challenge to solve and you're not back in that high-stress executing environment. Um, yeah, thanks for being vulnerable about that. That's really cool. What with, I guess we'll jump back to polar optics because this was the second invention you'd had your second, I guess, foray into something that was uh, commercializing something like this. What is Polar Optics? How did that start as your first foray into being the inventor extraordinaire, Logan Williams? Yeah, so Polar Optics uh, involved a lot less being in the river. <laughs> it's, already, it's already an improvement. <laughs> Sounding much more enticing. But, but like all good, good inventions or good companies that started with a problem and that problem is photosensitive epilepsy now for those of you who don't know photosensitive epilepsy is just a complicated way of saying when someone sees flashing light in a specific frequency they have an epileptic seizure pretty much uncontrollable um, this can lead to death in extreme cases but it's an incredible impairment on your life and it's actually quite common i can't remember off the top of the head how many people suffer from it um, but one of my close friends at university, Emily Mace, I don't know if she'll listen to this, um, she suffers or s still suffers to this day from photosensitive epilepsy. And what they do is when you have photosensitive epilepsy, they put you on this epilim drug. And sure, it's great, but it can actually make you super fatigued. And like all medications, there is a prolonged, you know, underlying problem. Yeah, with side epilim. effects, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So for me... I really wanted to find a way to provide, you know, these people suffering from this life-threatening disease, or I guess condition you would call it, 
um, a solution that didn't require you popping pills. So the way I started was I interviewed the Epilepsy Foundation. So I called up and I said, can I have a list of all the people that suffer from epilepsy? And I just called them up, called them up, called them up, harassing them. And I just asked them, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minute questionnaire. And quite a lot of them kept saying that, you know, big, thick, dark, polarized glasses stopped them from having a seizure because it, it's, it made the difference between light and dark less. And it also gave them enough time to see the stimulus and close their eyes and move their head out of the way. But as you can imagine, like rocking up to work or <laughs> to school with like big, yeah. <laughs> big, thick, buzzy beat glasses. The poor 15-year-old going through puberty, you're <laughs> wearing <laughs> polarized glasses to class. Yeah, it's not exactly so. fashion-oriented. I mean, um, and also, you know, glasses fall off. You can see from the side, like if there was stimuli on the side, you could still have a seizure. So working on that premise, I thought, you know, how can I streamline this and make it more accessible for people? So the premise that I found was let's make polarised contact lenses that people can wear that stops them from having a seizure, okay? And the next step beyond that is, hey, can we measure how sensitive someone's eyes are and prescribe them a level of polarisation? In layman's terms, it's pretty simple. If you're really sensitive, you have darker lenses. If you're less sensitive, you have lighter uh, lenses. And of course, I don't... Unlike Diddy Mo, you can't just make this in your kitchen. Yeah, this is this is what I want yeah. to know. This is what I'm getting to. I'm like, this idea sounds great. How did you make it? Yeah, and I, you know, at this stage had a bit of money, but not much. So this is early, early days. I, I went on Alibaba. This is before AliExpress. And I went to all the contact lens manufacturers, and I was just contacting them, say, oh, yeah, you know, I'd like to polarize contact lenses. Is it doable? At this stage, I don't speak much English, but I managed to cut through and they said, one company said, yeah, we could do it, um, but minimum order quantity is 1,000 units. <laughs> and it, it's not a quick mathematician to know that like, this could end up being you know, 10, 30,000 US dollars. So I said, that sounds great, but perhaps I'd like a sample pack. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the classic. Cheat codes. Cheat codes. Yeah. So I had oh, man. the sample pack sent over of different lenses. Now came the difficulty of, how am I going to test this? Because if it doesn't work, I could kill someone. So I had this testing apparatus where I had like a sensor measuring like not only the intensity of light, but the rate at which the light was flickering and how it was impacted by a lens. So I could put the lens in. But <laughs> one time I, I put the sensor to be really high, like the light, like really mm. high. And I flick it on and like my eyes, my retinas are just like, <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> closing, like, I can't see anything, you know, it's just after imaging on my eyes, I see the light on the back of my eyelids, oh, no. like, blind for like a full five minutes. I'm like, I fully blinded myself. And thankfully, it came back, my eyes were red or burnt out. Um, Is this why you have glasses now and your eyes flicker? <laughs> That's it. As you were alluding to. We found out why. Well, the, the, the prolonged effects of inventing and killing me, yeah. Um, so yeah, I proved scientifically without testing it on people that if X is what causes someone to have an epileptic seizure and this frequency is what is being emitted, that the lens can have a decent enough effect to stop it from causing the seizure. So in effect, I created an algorithm where you could measure how sensitive someone's eyes were and then prescribe them a level of polarization so they could wear the lens. Wow. If that doesn't sound too complicated, yeah. No, I can understand that. I have no idea how you get there. In but the same way you'd, yeah. you'd go to get an eye test to figure out what 
lens you need to see short-sighted, long-sighted. You'd go see what your photosensitivity levels were. Yep. And then you would get prescribed, pre-manufactured a set that dealt with that difference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Wow. Um, I, I was really – I didn't write mm. like the whole disposable contact lenses, so I was more mm. for the long-term contact lenses – but it turns out, like, if you go swimming with them, <laughs> like, you you can go blind. It's prone to inf- infection. Yeah. So I kind of went back to the disposable ones. Um, yeah. So after getting to that point, so I would call that proof of concept. I had somewhat of supply chain because, you know. You had 10,000 units waiting for you. <laughs> yeah. You had that sample pack. <laughs> Were but they messaging I, you every three days? You know, I, <laughs> I found quite quickly that, you know, you need FDA approval, that pesky old thing. Yeah. <laughs> And I was going to Old these Chestnut, consulting the fun companies police. and they were quoting me like, <laughs> there's no limit, like millions of dollars to get it um, FDA approved. So I was pretty deflated. I felt like this was a distressful situation. <laughs> so I, you know, being naive, I literally just got a list of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. And if you go on their website, they have like what their email address would be that makes sense the back end yeah and then i found the ceo's name and i just try every iteration i could and then put it in bcc so they can't see that i'd send it to like every iteration logan taught me this trick it is phenomenal so like logan dot williams our williams ceo at or williams logan or any of those iterations i just sit there like you know and then i tried every pharmaceutical company you know i want to know how well this works every time every time as long as you make it don't make like a long-winded email because no one reads like i had a snappy five minute video about what Mm. i was doing and like a short succinct paragraph on who i am and why they should like what's in it for them just compelling enough Mm. um that's how it started yeah who got back to you? Who who did you contact and who got back to you? Can you say? Yeah, 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 I can. So in short, I contacted everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, true Logan of, style. Of course, of course. I was just up to like three and like every iteration, like mind numbly. In fact, I'm sure at some point I'd send like to the wrong company, like the wrong person's name, but you know. Who cares? If only you had ChatGPT back then, you could have got it to automate the whole list for you. I know, right? That would have been beautiful. In fact, yes, people, you need to be doing this. Use ChatGPT for this purpose. Yeah. So uh, one company, Johnson & Johnson, got back to me. And wow. when I got back to me, I mean, the CEO didn't even directly respond to me, just sent it to like the legal person. Like, oh, this person said this. Can you do a check? And they checked whether it could be patented. So I don't know what this was at the time, but it's a prior mm. art search. So are there any patents that are infringing yeah. on this? Yeah. So after that review, mm. they went down to the specific part of the company that would be interested in it. And then that's at which point they, they purchased the company off me. Wow. Wow. The story, every time, I'm, I'm sounding like Owen Wilson, man. Wow. <laughs> every time. <laughs> you can catch me doing that a lot. <laughs> I'm really curious, right? So you've you've gone from Diddy motor contact lenses. You've got a strong why on the environment. What was the why behind the contact lenses? The why was my friend suffering from epilepsy and yeah. people dying of epilepsy. I think for me, I have a, a real passion for medicine because it's actually one of those really easy things where you directly see the impact of what you're doing. Um, 
my love is also kind of like reflected with hate of medicine as well because when it comes to commercializing medicine fundamentally what you're doing is trying to work out how severe the illness is that you're solving the pain point and how much they're willing to pay to solve it right if you're mm. maximizing profit and I'm, I'm a capitalist through and through but there is a fundamental issue here whereby you can create egregious profit margins because if it's life or death, people are going to pay you the money. So if there is a way that we could make these solutions, you know, maybe a broad brush approach saying that this is the profit margin, this is the operational cost that you need to run, I'm not sure. but Did you consider that at the time? Because you were only 19. Or is this something that I guess you've developed after the fact and begun to, I guess, understand more as you've had more commercial experience and have commercialized more and more different things? Yeah, I think it definitely opened my eyes that I always thought going into it that people were had a why as well, but there are many people in many corporations around the world that are just all about the bottom line money um, mm. and will run over anyone to achieve that. So it did make me question whether I should be selling these types of inventions to these types of companies or whether it's something that I should safeguard myself and develop and commercialise. Because in the early days, you know, in effect, I would develop it to a point and then sell it. Whereas now my approach is far different. I'm building it for the long term. I've got far more of a horizon approach. Um, the short term approach works, but fundamentally now I think you receive more, more benefit, more long term benefit from holding on to the invention and company. Would you call yourself an empathetic person? I would say that if you're between me and a goal <laughs> and, and like you're a roadblock, it's going to be a big issue <laughs> like with me. Like I think most people will tell you that. Like uh, It's like an unmovable object <laughs> meeting an unstoppable object. Like I'll bowl you. But if, if you're part of my why and you're part of my team, my family, like of course, like I have deep empathy. And I think you have to be empathetic when it comes to inventing or building a business because you need to have the ability to understand how your customer or how you, that other person's feeling. Um, and in business at all, like if you're negotiating, you need to understand like, what are they thinking? How are they feeling? Like, what am I saying that is influencing what they're doing? Um, because a lot of people go into business and say, me, 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 I, 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 where in actuality you need to understand what they want and try and give them what they want. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I really like what you said about the, I guess, bringing it back to the why, what you said earlier. If you don't have a why behind what you're doing, especially as an entrepreneur, you're going to hit those roadblocks and you're going to really run out of um, your direction and you're going to stop and you're just going to go and quit and get something else done. And what you said about empathy and how that relates to that, um, that's such an important learning when you're starting a business knowing that you have to have a why, you have to have a problem that you're solving and you really have to empathize with that end customer. Moving through your your inventions to date, let's get into ShareEdge, where we met. You left university, you went and worked with Fonterra for a time. How did you end up with the New Zealand Merino Company? Where did that journey start? It actually started quite interesting. Um, Ash Campbell, John, who was the CEO's um, executive assistant at the time, just out of the blue asked me to come in for a coffee. Um, literally met the team 
And in the middle of the meeting in front of everyone, John turns to me and says, what would it take for you to come and work at New Zealand Merino and build a company with us or solve strong wool? And for those of you who don't know, you've got Merino, which is your fine wool, which is about 10% of wool. And you have strong wool, like your, I think it's woolen, woolen carpet, the rug we're on. And I said to him verbatim, I said, it will take $150,000 salary and I want equity in whatever company we build. I'm going to be completely transparent. That's what I said. Um, and they were a bit taken aback. <laughs> and then after a week, they called up. You're 24 at the time? Yeah. And the deal was done. Um, and I came down and got into it. That's how it started. And we were very fortunate to have received government funding to try and improve the strong wool market, which has seen, you know, a massive decline in recent years and was actually the backbone of this country at one point in time. And I started out really simple. I said, well, we've got this problem being this abundance of wool. What material uses the most wool? Oh, most, most material, and it's plastic. So the way I started was I bought polylactic acid, which is cornstarch and wool, Went to the warehouse and bought a toasting machine and an electric frying pan. The warehouse is getting plugged right now. <laughs> it is. This is our rear Dyson thing. alternatives, <laughs> toasting machines. <laughs> Melted down the cornstarch, chopped up the wool, heat pressed it into a sheet, went and brought a wood chipper, where we hired a wood chipper from Hyapool, and chipped it into coarse pallets. And this is all in a shipping container. And at this point, I called up all the plastic manufacturers in the country, well, primarily in Christchurch, where we are based, begging them to try and use the, use the material. And Adam, uh, who's, who's the owner of Action Plastics, after everyone saying no, said yes. And that was what kicked it I off. I believe he said, that sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, Thanks for the clarification on that. Yeah. Adam, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But yeah, it took a lot of convincing. Adam was not, not by, by any means convinced immediately. And it was only until we got out the dinosaur machine that they very rarely used that he would actually let us trial. But we got there in the end. <laughs> I'm really curious. So you go in, you know you've got a problem to solve. This sounds to me like you used this, like a very similar method to how you operated with your Didymo to start trying to make plastics out of the wall. Is that where it came from? I think fundamentally, although every invention I've done is in a different field, the same process is actually in effect the same. Building a rubber band company is the same amount of energy and process in effect as building a more complex company like Tesla. Sure, there are more you know, technical expertise in building a car, but the fundamental process of building a supply chain, manufacturing, taking a product to market is, is very similar. So with each invention or each project you do, you learn, and from those learnings, it becomes even more efficient. To now, I don't repeat the same mistake that I have in previous inventions. And the, sure, there were a lot of learnings from Didymo, but there were actually a lot of learnings from other inventions that I put into ShareEdge as well that, that made it work. When you were, um, because when I joined, you just made the, the medical alert bracelet, which was the first product you put through the dinosaur machine with action plastics. Um, what was the driver from that point? There's the old adage within the primary industries shifting from volume to value. Where did you see the company going from having a medical alert bracelet in your hand that was made from wool? At that point, 
what did you see as the next trajectory for the business? Well, I think there were two main vectors here. One is supply and one is demand. So you always want to be market-led. You want to go get the market demand first before building supply because this is a one-way route to spending a lot of money with no, no sales, okay? So immediately, armed with you know a sheet of material and a Medic Alert bracelet, we would go up to people and sell them the dream, the vision. Mm. And most people weren't really convinced, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> so true. They're like, why would I put wool in it? It's going to ruin my product and I may lose customers if I take the risk. So in order to bridge that gap, we needed a hero product, something that captured everyone's imagination, qu- silenced all the haters. And for us, that was the catamaran. <laughs> so Here it is. And I hear Logan's brought in some samples. The catamaran <laughs> is coming. No, no. Didn't no. bring the catamaran? That's all right. <laughs> Dang. But bear, bear in mind at this point, for every, the context, a medic alert bracelet is 15 mil by 10 mil. It is tiny. And when Logan said to me, our hero product is going to be a catamaran, which isn't made the same way as a medical <laughs> bracelet. It uses very different materials. It, is, it was four meters by two meters. Yeah, yeah. My, bra- my brain couldn't comprehend it. I was very much helping commercialize it. it. <laughs> <laughs> helping commercialize it, but I just didn't get it. How, how did you jump from medical bracelet to catamaran? And what was the importance of the hero product? Well, fundamentally, it was market feedback that told me that we had to do something of a catamaran nature because everyone said, is it strong enough? Will it wear? Will it break? Is it going to actually work? How big can I make it? How thin can I do it? And I thought, well, what product fits that criteria? And it's a boat. A boat is on the sea. People, like, live or die whether a boat's going to sink or swim. (laughs) So... I thought if we're going to go big, we might as well do it properly. And let's just go and do a catamaran. We'll do a massive press release. Everyone will be convinced. Mm. Yeah. And I think at that stage, we had the production facility in Hamilton, yep. uh, which was producing noodles, which is what every single piece of plastic is, or plastic, instru- plastic product is made out of, a little bead. Um, and there was a boat manufacturer, Fat Cat, uh, Roger Twiddell and crew, uh, they all were all manufactured in New Zealand and it was just trying to figure out and problem solve how to turn it from this product that we had into something that was that go-to-market strategy that was that, oh my goodness, this is actually something that I can put in my products and silence all of the no's. I remember you said a lot to me in those early stages, the learning that you had from your early inventions. First, they fight you. You're going to have to repeat the saying for me because I can't... First they laugh at you. Yeah, there you go. Then they fire you. Then you succeed. Yeah, exactly. And it was very true. It was very true. We had that up on the wall in our office because we'd call people and they'd be like, no, no, no. And I'm like, like, I'll call you back next week. (laughs) I think one of my favorite conversations with Tom was when he came home and he said, so I had a list of 200 people to call today. The first one did not go well. <laughs> Do you remember I called some plastics manufacturer in Timaru or I thought they were a, a furniture manufacturer and I'd done all my market research, first of 200 to call from that day and I'd showed you my list. You're like, yeah, let's go. And I rang her and she was like, we don't actually manufacture our own products. I don't think you've done your market research well enough. Yeah. 
But that was the you stress. That was like, I've got a, oh. I've got a list. That's that's where the real real bulldog, I guess, side of of sales and developing. Well, it's failure is inevitable as well, right? And that's it. it's coming to overcome the challenges. I love the way you guys had a problem, which was no one believed in your product because they're like, this is too small. I can't see the vision. And you went, what's the biggest thing we can do to prove it? Bang, boat. That like jump to that. I, I don't know. I, I just love your um, belief in your own product to take it that far. So you've made a boat. You've sort of done this massive press release. How does that go? And how do these no's, like, you know, what happens? Do, do these people start calling you or do, do all of a sudden the calls that were no's start turning yeses? How did that change the trajectory? It was an inundation of yeses, to be honest, mm. like almost overwhelming. And quite quickly, we realized that let's use this as a market validation opportunity. Like these companies can take the risk by using our material and we know whether this product is going to sell or not. So we ended up doing about 60 different products all up of companies. And we said no to a lot of people, actually, mm. to be frank. Um, a lot of people came in completely gassed up about using it, but it just didn't resonate right. Like if it's a component within something or the story couldn't be carried or yeah. it was going to like not be right ethically, like in the right mm. product market. Um, and fundamentally, we kind of narrowed down that we needed products that were high end, could tell the story of wool, and actually showcase like the performance benefits that it was stiffer, mm. stronger, lighter. Um, that's the benefit, I think, after doing all that market validation. And it was a real shift from, that was when the shift from volume to value became the play. It was the real sheer edge as an ingredient brand. Like Gore-Tex is to Nike or Arcteryx. We were to the warehouse group launching the world's first woolen catamaran. We weren't the brand of the product, we were the thing that made it different. Yep. It's such a cool story to see the progression from making your own sort of like, what do you call it? Synthetic leather out of Didymo by yourself, dredging through rivers to here you are working for a massive New Zealand company solving one of their biggest problems. I mean, sure, you've got to look at that journey and... I know your breath's going to be taken away a little bit. Yeah, it certainly feels good, but it's not, it's not how, it would how you would think it would feel. Um, you set these ambitious goals, and when you get to them, it do, it, you do feel a sense of accomplishment, but it's not exactly how you would envisage it. Um, really, all I'm left with is hunger for more, <laughs> to be honest. And I've always said to my wife, when I die, I'd like on my tombstone, sure, my name will be there, but I'd like little symbols of all the inventions I did and just like little words. That's what I would like. I'd like to be remembered for like the impact I had on the world and the problems I solved to improve people's lives and the environment. That's what I'd like to be remembered by. One of the things that's always inspired me about you, Logan, is I remember when I first walked into the Shearage, or at the time it was Kiravos office. This was back in October 2020, maybe 2019. And you had all of your drawings and your ideation of the different inventions up on the wall almost as sort of a, a storytelling to remind you of the journey that you've been on. Um, one of those drawings was of the journey you started while you were at Fonterra. And I'd love to get back into that because that's where you're working now. But it's also something that it was, or it, it was already in existence when we met each other and now it's really coming to fruition. 
where did that journey start? How did you end up working for Fonterra? How did you end up helping them solve one of their core problems? I think my journey up until now has led me to this exact spot. You know when you're in that point in the universe where you know that you're on the right track? I'm at that spot right now. And there's very few problems that I've felt so passionate about that I will literally drop everything I'm doing to, to tackle it. And in this case, the problem we're solving is methane. Now, most people that are listening will know about the climate crisis. So you have three core gases that are contributing to global warming. CO2, carbon dioxide, CH4, methane, and nitrous oxide. Methane is 30 times more potent in the atmosphere for greenhouse gas emissions than CO2. Our biggest contributor in New Zealand for methane is the humble dairy cow. In fact, if you knock out methane from New Zealand's um, contributions, you end up halving New Zealand's methane. Um, I can't talk too much in detail about specifically what I'm doing, but we've built the first range of products that chemically destroys methane. Um, That's phenomenal. Methane is like a notoriously hard chemical to break down. It is ultra-stable. It is a carbon with four hydrogens. And anyone who's done chemistry will know that it does not like reacting with anything. So to be able to accomplish this at the rate that we're doing it um, is truly insane. And we've really brought together the dream team. We have one of New Zealand's biggest companies, Fonterra, myself, the crazy inventor, and Sprout, LP, which is an investment company, which has money from Finisterre and our crowd, um, hedge funds from overseas. And we're also in partnership with the government under the Climate Emergency Relief Fund to try and tackle methane head on and make a positive impact for the world. I don't even know where to start, man. You're just dropping bombs. Um, if I can say, I think it's poetic that you've ended up working for Fonterra. Successful in the eyes of all people in Timaru. Exactly. Um, you ended up working for the dairy, the big dairy. <laughs> Amazing. One thing I am trying to get my head around is even just like getting to the point where you, obviously you understand the chemistry of this problem. I don't know if you can go on the detail of how you even went about trying to solve that. Um, I know you can't talk too much about the product specifics, but... Um, what does that process even look like? Instead of talking specifically about the invention, what I'd rather do is talk about the current solutions because I yeah, don't want to throw yeah. bombs at other people, but they don't really hit the mark. Like a lot of the solutions, maybe it's due to scale, but they're like really expensive and they kind of screw with the cow's biology. And I don't want to say that in an impolite way, but I kind of want the cow to just remain a cow. Like, you know, it's evolved to be this, highly productive animal that chews grass and produces milk. We don't need to start screwing with the rumen, the biology of the cow. We need a solution that goes beyond the cow, allows the cow to still be a cow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't yeah. want, you know, <laughs> poor Daisy to keel over in the middle of the field because she can't, her stomach's exploded. Like, let's be real <laughs> here. We need something that's elegant, something that's cost effective and just destroys all the methane. That's, that's what we need i think in my eyes i'm not going to pretend to try and understand the biology and gaseous chemistry that you are you are dealing with but i can only imagine 
knowing how long that this problem has gone on, it's an extraordinarily challenging problem. Not only to solve at face value, but also at a commercial level. What what do you see being, I guess, the commercial model for something like this, considering it's a problem that's been struggled with for so long? Yeah, so fundamentally, the technology has to work. I think everyone's talking about how pro- solutions can be stacked. Like you could take one solution, stack it with another. One may do 10%, another may do 20%, you hit 30%. We need just one elegant solution that can knock it all out, in my opinion, anyway. The second is it needs to be cost-effective, a cow is only worth X amount of dollars, right? Like if you're making a $1,000 solution, it's not going to work. Um, unless there's some real expensive cows. Maybe. Yeah, what's the going rate for cows these days? You want to know that? One and a half grand. It depends really on how productive the cow is, what breed it is. Um, but yeah, if it's just a, a bobby calf, it can go for like 800. But fundamentally, we're talking about high productive I really respect that answer. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad that was so in depth. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, so fundamentally we need an elegant solution that is cost-effective, that is easy to use and can be immediately applied around the world. New Zealand is the perfect place, I guess put it this way, where else would be a better place in the world to have like an environmentally friendly solution in agriculture, specifically dairy? Like New Zealand is the perfect platform to do it and Fonterra is an amazing brand to do it with. Well, I think, and I think it's, amazing that you were able to forge a relationship when you were working there that you now get to go back to and you get to develop this in partnership with them one of the things i really want to touch on is we've talked a lot about all of these different inventions and all of the learnings and how that's led till now what have been the biggest failures in that journey so many failures so many, I mean, I could do a whole podcast on just the failures, to be honest. Um, yeah, so the first one is like arrogance. Like that was a big, everyone faces different problems, but for me it was arrogance. So, and very egocentric arrogance. So I was totally driven by awards, by accolades, by, you know, getting recognition. Now I'm much more... Focused on the why and less of the accolades, if that makes sense. Because sure, these awards are great momentarily, but how do they really contribute? Like you're not going to be remembered for for these awards, maybe in the short term. But can you name who got New Zealander of the Year twelve years ago? I can't. No, no, absolutely can't. not. No. And not to devalue the amazing work they're doing, but what I'm saying is the work they're doing is more important than the accolade. That's what I would say. That's so profound. And I think you achieved what many people really aspire to achieve in terms of accolades at such a young age. Do you think that that changed your perspective? You talked before about when you sold your Didymo invention and you went through that period of a really low point and you had that moment of self-reflection. Do you reckon that was when your perspective shifted? When did it shift from accolades driven to actually I'm so obsessive about the why I think actually it was just being surrounded by like toxic individuals because you would go to these award functions and it was the same people every time and you could tell that they were like self-nominating and all they cared about like 50% of their time was spent on trying to get these awards and trying to remain relevant kind of like a celebrity like desperately trying to be like you know at front of mind of the consciousness of society. Whereas wow. 
in effect, you get way more value from like just the day-to-day of not being recognized but building something that's going to change people's lives. Like, yeah, if someone's suffering from epilepsy and they're using that solution, that's way better than Absolutely. <laughs> opening up, you know, a news article and reading about something, to be honest. Like, the best impact you can have, I think, when it comes to, like, actually getting out there, um, whether it's the news or whatever, is inspiring other people to do inventing. Because I'm only one person, and although on my gravestone there may be 10 or 20 inventions, imagine if I could inspire or teach, you know, 100, 1,000 people to be an inventor like me. Immediately you go from 100 to 100,000 solutions, and that's where you change the world. You just answered so many questions to me. You've talked about how you grew. He's talked about legacy. Yeah, Man's efficient, even in his question answering. Gosh, call me impressed. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of flattery for you. Um, Tom, do you have any questions you'd love to ask Logan? I think we've really encapsulated your story. I mean, to take it to where you just took it, we've seen, I feel like through this conversation, a small town Cantabrian grow into a strong business leader, innovator, with a real vision for not what he's going to get out of everything, but a real pathway forward for his impact on the world. Um, I think it's an incredible story. Mm. I, Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what you just said about recognizing that it's not just about the accolade, that it's about the why kind of leads back to the, the guy who left Timaru as a form of escapism was what you said. You wanted to be surrounded by people who were driven um, and now you've got to this, it's, it's so full circle. You've just said you've got to the point where you want, you might have a hundred inventions on your tombstone, but you might inspire a thousand other people to do something else. And I, it's actually pretty awesome to, to see that, that full cycle and your why change, like fully change to inspire the person that you were when you were 18 and left Timaru. Um, we do this segment on, on our podcast where we get the previous guest to ask a question of the next guest on the show. And the last, last person we had on Jack, he, um, his question was, if you could go back to the start of the business that you're working on right now, day dot, you came up with the idea. What would you tell that person to do differently? Don't change a thing. Follow the path. The path may be windy and it may not be obvious at the time. And in a roundabout way, it definitely wasn't. But it led to where you were meant to be in the universe. I had to go to New Zealand Marino. I had to build Shearage in order to get a better understanding of life and who I am to come back stronger and then do Halo. That had to happen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's a fantastic final answer. Do you want me to ask the next person a question? That's, that was my follow-up. What's the question you've got for the, the next person we talk to? What will you be remembered for? There we go. Locked in. Locked in. Well, Logan, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us for so long. It was awesome to hear your story. Um, you're welcome to look at the cameras. You're welcome to look at us. Why don't you just tell the people how they can engage with what you're doing, um, get involved with, with the story of Logan Williams. 
You don't need to get involved with anything I'm doing. What you need to do is go home, get a piece of paper out, write down your why, write down a problem you're deeply passionate about, create a hundred different solutions, work out the best one, and invent and change the world. That's what you need to do. Fade to black, cut it right there. That's beautiful. I think that's what I'm going to go home and do. <laughs> I'm up till 4 a.m., man. Thanks so much, Logan. I, um, that was awesome. You have been listening to the Progress Podcast. We launch episodes every Friday. And if you want to know more about us and who we are and what we do, you can visit our website, theprogresspod.com. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. So tune in on your favorite podcast channels or head to our YouTube to see what we're up to in the studio. We'd also love to hear your feedback. So send your burning questions, your guest suggestions and your feedback to hello at 